I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. <laughs> Hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? <laughs> Welcome to Broadcast, folks. This is Theology Unplugged. It's great to have you all here. I'm here in the studio joined with Michael Patton, my partner in crime, ministry partner, uh, and also Sam Storms. Glad to have you fellows here. You did a good job. Thank you. Nice. I'm folks. impressed. <laughs> folks, you're getting the folks down. I, I put they on say my folks in Iowa. Oh, they do. Actually, actually, I once was criticized in a sermon by someone by using folks. And someone told me, like, hey, that's kind of a dated term. Maybe you shouldn't use folks. Maybe you should refer to people as something else. And I'm yeah. kind of like, you know, that's the M.O. in Iowa. I, I think yeah, folks is... just say y'all. Yeah, or all y'all. Welcome to the broadcast, y'all. <laughs> no, it, you got to say all y'all. It's a, it's a redundancy in the system. Welcome to the broadcast, all y'all. <laughs> Welcome to broadcast, ladies and gentlemen, dudes and dudettes. Yeah. How's that? That's good. That's good. All right, Theology Unplugged, um, talking here this afternoon, <clears throat> or this evening, morning, whenever you're listening to this, middle of the night, um, about uh, a, a special thing that's been going on around, I guess, the web, around the world. It's gotten so popular, people have named it something very particular. We're calling it Hell's Gate now, I guess. Is it Hell's Gate or Hellgate? Hellgate. I don't know. Okay. Or Bell's Hell. Bell's <laughs> Hellgate. <laughs> um, it's it's a firestorm of controversy that has been begun. That uh, you know we, as I look at it, anytime these types of controversies get started up, I, I get really excited about it. Not because of the controversy itself. Don't like controversy. You guys know how we do things around here. But I like to talk about theology, and I like it whenever people's antennas go up, and I like it whenever people ask them theological questions because they're asking questions about truth. Exactly. And, I mean, it just shows, you know, we kind of joke about it, but this is a very, very serious topic, and it's also it's something that we should talk about. You know, unfortunately, uh, we shouldn't wait until a controversial moment to discuss uh, a key point of theology. But that's how it is with all of us, isn't it? I mean, anytime something in our own personal lives, there's... There's uh, antennas that go up because of circumstances in our lives that get brought up. And so then we begin to ask those questions that we might not have ever asked. And, you know, in these circumstances, I see this stuff as, uh, as a gift of God. So we're talking about hell. That's the issue. Yeah. Um, not that it's a new issue. No. Uh, not that this is the first time we have talked about hell or the church has brought it up and said, hmm, I wonder if, you know, this hell stuff is is really worthy of keeping in our doctrinal statements. Yeah. But it is a time whenever the doctrine of hell is being questioned once again. Um, uh, you know, and, and it has to do with uh, publication of a work mm-hmm. um, by Rob Bell, Love Wins. Published through HarperCollins or Harper One. HarperCollins, Harper One. They did a uh, campaign where they put out a promo video on it, kind of teased at this idea that um, that uh, people uh, we God loves everybody. God ultimately is powerful. God ultimately is going to win in the end. Therefore, a, a, the greatest way for him to lose is to have people in hell for all eternity. So hell will eventually be vacated. Now that's kind of the idea of the teaser video. Now I guess I'd better say. That this isn't about the book. 
necessarily. Yeah. It, it just, it's just springboarded by the book. So this is not a book review on Love Wins. Exactly. And I think it's good. You know, I think some people might criticize uh, Christianity in general right now to say, wow, look how reactionary you are. Look how, you know, I mean, this is just kind of strange to get so excited about a book or whatever it may be. But I think we can see in church history that this is very common. And I think it's a sense of teachability, too, to say, okay, this is a big issue right now, and instead of ignoring it, let's use this as an opportunity, like you were saying, to talk about it and discuss this. And then, you know, we see all throughout church history, too, m- most of the times that we highlight certain things of the faith, they're in reaction to people who were teaching something that was contrary to what we believe the Bible teaches. And we believe, um, like with the Reformers, that we need to continually be examining what it is we do and what it is that we teach. And we don't get settled. We don't make camp. We don't stop and say, all right, this is it. This is, this is the way that it is. And it's, it can't, uh, we, we can't understand it any better. And we have perfected in our understanding. So we're not coming here saying we're perfected in our understanding of God. We're entering into the discussion about hell. And that's what this broadcast is about. Um, now, Here's what's being brought up, and uh, you know this is incredibly understandable. The doctrine of hell is being questioned simply due to the fact that it seems to militate against God's love. Now, this is again not the new way of questioning it. This is the way that that Friedrich Schleiermacher. Back in the 19th century, the so-called father of liberalism uh, would have questioned the same doctrine. This is the question that people would bring up throughout history whenever you do have fringe movements here and there or people that would, that would reject the doctrine of hell. The reason for rejecting the doctrine of hell is because it doesn't seem to uh, coincide with a loving God who can do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the doctrine of hell, traditionally as understood, is a place of punishment and a place of torment and a place of separation from God that is eternal. The traditional doctrine of hell would not um, allow for this eternity to end. If that. You know well, I mean? and, and I think the, maybe to nuance this just a little bit, I know we'll spend the whole broadcast talking about it, but not just that the concept of hell is eternal. So, like, let's say there's a hell that lasts forever and people just pass through it. So hell is eternal, but not the people who are in it, perhaps. But the Christian understanding is that that is eternal as well, is that the people who are in hell are in there forever. And they're in pain forever. That's right. Or they're in torment forever. Or they're weeping forever. Or they're gnashing their teeth forever. I mean, all of these imageries that we bring up, they're never pleasant. Whatever it is, and I, I don't propose to act as if I know what this torment looks like in actuality. Uh, all I know is that it seems to be from the Bible and from a, a clear witness of church history, and we'll talk a little bit more about that because that's being questioned as well, that people are going to be there forever and ever. Just as long as you will be in heaven or on the new earth with God experiencing the blessings, there will be people who are experiencing the torments of hell. And traditionally, most people believe that hell is going to be more populated than heaven. Mm-hmm. 
Now, if that's the only thing that we had to talk about and the only thing, I don't like to talk about hell. I'll be upfront with you guys. I'd rather not. I'd rather, you know, uh, I'd rather it be obscure. I don't like to think about hell, let alone talk about it. No, it'll drive you insane. It really will. If, you, if you're really honest with yourself and if uh, we, uh, we have a defense mechanism, I think. I've got a defense mechanism where I can turn this thing off in my brain to where it doesn't, it doesn't torment me, the thought of torment. Because that's the worst thing. I mean, I always talk to people whenever they talk about, you know, the God of the Old Testament and then God in the Old Testament being uh, someone who, who comes in there and wipes out Canaan and, and, and does these things and, and the problem of evil and, and how does he allow for young children to die. All that's bad. But whenever I talk about that, I usually in my mind say, what am I doing talking about this? I could up the ante by just talking about hell. It's much worse than anything we're talking about here. Mm. Uh, this this is the problem, I guess we would have with uh, uh, a, a bigger problem than those things that I talked about with the problem of evil in general here on this earth. Yeah, this is eternal. Pain. So, so may, maybe what we're saying is that we identify with Rob Bell in the essence of wishing that there was not a hell. And, and, and anybody, yeah. yeah, and anybody, and we find no delight in uh, in putting forth this doctrine in the way that I believe God finds no delight in it as well um, in 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 the wicked uh, in their punishment. Uh, but um, but I, you know, we're not coming at this just fully academically without an emotional connection as well to a doctrine that we wish did not exist. But what we're going to talk about is a necessity of its existence and teaching truthfully of its existence. Well, I'm ready for Sam to talk me out of the doctrine of hell. Yeah, Sam's been, uh, he's been quiet as a mouse around here. Well, I'm just listening to this wisdom flow <laughs> forth incessantly from, uh, from your lips. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is one that we have to be careful and guarded in our language. Um, I tend to agree with all that you have said from a strictly uh, visceral and emotional point of view, but... Um, perhaps I can uh, stir the pot here by throwing out a, a, an idea or a suggestion. Uh, you know, our tendency is to say, I wish there weren't a hell. I wish this doctrine, I hear people say, I wish this doctrine were not in Scripture. I would prefer not to think about it. But let me just throw a little uh, uh, twist into the... Sam's getting ready to get on to us. He yeah, said, like he's, this he's is a a journal. Really... He said, "I hear people say." <laughs> Whatever he knows, he just heard us say that. <laughs> oh, but what a kind he, man! Yeah, well, no, what I, th- I should probably hold off my praise on Sam before I hear his. Uh, <laughs> no, his... what I'm thinking is this: um, Do we make those kinds of statements because perhaps we have not um, grappled with? understood fully or have not yet grown in our appreciation of the magnitude of the glory and the beauty and the splendor and the holiness of God. In other words, uh, is it possible that the reason why hell seems so unreasonable and objectionable to us is because God is so obscure and unintelligible to us? If we saw God, uh, perhaps as Isaiah did, let's just take him for an example, in in chapter 6 of his prophecy, 
uh, with his glory filling the temple, the majesty and the splendor of who God is in and of himself. You know, in that story, Isaiah's reaction is one of, oh my gosh, up till now, I, I thought I was okay. You know, I'm a great prophet. People respect me. I thought I was doing well. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, I'm coming unraveled at the, at the seams, so to speak. Uh, I live among a people of unclean lips. In other words, it was his vision of the, uh, really in a sense, as much as is possible this side of heaven, the unmediated vision of the majesty and glory of God that brought to him an awareness of his sin that he had never had before. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, in the midst of our discussion of hell, if we have diminished the reality of hell or we have found ourselves thinking it would be better if it did not exist, could that be due to the fact that we haven't seen God as Isaiah saw God? If we understood him to be as holy and infinitely beautiful and morally perfect and splendid and majestic as he is, would it not cause us to see and understand sin its horror, its the magnitude of its perversity, of its irrationality, in such a way that hell would begin to make more sense to us. Um, so again, I, I'm not saying sitting here saying that I'm comfortable with the idea of hell. I, I have the same reaction you all do. Uh, you're right, Michael. I, I've spent time meditating on this issue, and it will, uh, if you allow it to drive you insane, it will. It, it will torment you mentally to think about eternal torment of unbelievers. And, and yet I wonder uh, if that is due in large part to the diminished view of God. Uh, you know, Some would say, no, it, it's because we have such a high view of God that we need to reject the concept of hell. And I would say it's just the opposite. It's when we have a heightened, thoroughly biblical view of God that we suddenly recognize the magnitude Mm-hmm. the indescribable depths of human depravity and how truly deserving of eternal condemnation all of us are. Yeah. So I guess that's that's just how my, my train of thought is going right now. And I think when I find myself having this emotional, somewhat visceral, um, you know, uh, quick snap judgment reaction against the idea of eternal punishment, I find that it is probably due to the fact that I have not um, uh, sufficiently meditated on the infinity of the honor of God and how sin has, uh, how defiling, how demeaning it is uh, in the face of this infinitely beautiful being that we worship and love. Now you're talking um, like Tozer. Am I? Yeah. That's... uh, that's, uh, what I've been reading in uh, <clears throat> Knowledge of the Holy is the 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 tendency that we have to look God in the eye as if we can come before Him and say, "I want to look you eye to eye so that I can understand this and so that I can so that I can comprehend it." And the the infinite majesty of God that causes us to be eternally unable to see that. 
And I think one of the things that we're going to have to recognize when we're talking about this, and those of you who are joining us for the first time, welcome. You may have got this broadcast for the first time, but we have been going through and will continue to go through the doctrines of Calvinism, an invitation to Calvinism. And one of the things that we said during that broadcast is that that there's a lot of things that we are going to have a reaction against that are going that that is going to take faith for us mm-hmm. to believe and i know that's funny i keep on saying faith to believe during these broadcasts but sometimes we want to diminish all faith and understand it perfectly before we believe it rather than saying well if 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 i did not ever uh, have the scriptures in front of me and have never read them, I would not automatically come up with the doctrine of hell, right? Just like we talked about in Calvinism. I want to come up with that stuff. I want to come up with unconditional election. I want to come up with uh, the, the understanding that we have of those things. But whenever we come to the scriptures, there are going to be some very difficult things that, that we will have the tendency to judge God. And one of the, one of the scriptures that always comes to mind whenever I'm you know, teaching theology and discussing theology with people is this idea that's in the Psalms and repeated by, by Paul in Romans where he says, thou will prevail or you will prevail God when you are judged. And the idea of us putting God on the tribunal seat. And, and I think that that's what this hell's gate is about. It's putting God on a tribunal and saying, God, we've got you here and we've got a lot of witnesses against you. Mm-hmm. And I've got a lot of people that I know that that may go to hell, and I find this completely objectionable. So either, number one, we are going to try to um, uh, get rid of this completely, and in doing so, get rid of you, or just try to redefine you the best we can so that we can be comfortable with who you are here on this seat. We want to look you eye to eye. Right now in this situation, we can't look eye to eye, and we don't like it. Yeah. One thing that, that really strikes me, though, and this has moved me for quite some time now, is in Revelation 19, after many things have happened, after uh, the fall of Babylon and, and, uh, and that's, all that judgment has happened, in, uh, in verse 1, uh, it says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And what I, I love about that is uh, is they're not seeing everything. They're not seeing uh, this happens a little bit before some of the other judgments as well. But what I love is that it we're able to peek into the future a little bit at people who are responding to God's judgments and and the way that God is judging the world. And they're saying true and just are your judgments. And so in some ways that's a little bit of faith to believe as well is to say, you know what, as Scripture allows me to look into the future, I see people who are saying, you know, this is just what's happening right now yeah and it it reminds us of the fact that our perception of the either justice or injustice of hell now will not be is not the measure of our perception of it in the eternal state and that's so important sam i think that's comforting i mean just hearing you say that right now it makes me feel better well we will see god in a way that you know, we will, as First Corinthians 13 says, we will know even as we are known. We, we Now we see through a glass darkly, then we'll see face to face. Well, then we, will we be less compassionate? No. We, it's not that we are less compassionate. It is that we are more aware of the holiness of God. And as this text says, 
um, his judgments are true and just. And we see we will see sin for what it is, and we will see holiness and uh, and glory for what it is, and we will not be um, somehow hindered by uh, the uh, presence of sin and uh, selfish thoughts and um, just all of the things that cloud our thinking and our reasoning now. We will be able to see hell as God sees it. And uh, the righteousness of it, I think, will be evident to us at that time. Well, yeah. is God more compassionate than we are? I mean, in, in the present standing, is are we more compassionate for wanting to get rid of hell, or or is God still more? I don't, I don't want I don't want us to say, <clears throat> well, no, but God is more righteous. Okay, that that is a big deal, and I understand that. But I, I want to keep God's compassion infinitely greater than ours Mm -hmm. in all situations because that's where the judgment comes in is we begin to think we have a a greater sense of compassion we have a greater sense of family type love just morality in general yeah Yeah. that 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 we are the authority you know we're the moral compass and we can determine what is just and unjust at least in this case and sometimes i think we make it sound as if god's righteous comes in and trumps compassion no and I don't. That's not what we're saying, right? Yeah. Well, from the beginning, too, Christians have believed that God is simple in the essence of that His attributes do not. Uh, in, they don't confuse His other attributes, so He can be fully righteous, fully compassionate, uh, f- fully the Judge, all at the same time. And, and when we ask about is is God more compassionate than we are? Are we more compassionate than God? Well, the measure of God's compassion is the cross. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Look at what he did on our behalf. So that you ask, what what does God feel about sinners? What is his attitude toward those who are um, in, in moral corruption as we are? And the answer is the cross of Christ. In this is love. Uh, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we... We have to look to the cross as the expression and the measure of divine compassion. Uh, and obviously, that is portrayed in Scripture, and rightfully so, as the most magnanimous and incomprehensible sacrifice ever made. Um, so obviously, the compassion of God is infinitely greater than what we feel. Um, but can I, can I just kind of redirect this for just a moment? Um, I don't know if the people can hear on the broadcast, but there's been a lot of page turning. Uh, and obviously we are looking at texts. And I think what really would help us is maybe redirecting the conversation away from how we feel and what we would prefer and what other people have said and actually ask the question, does the Bible teach the notion of eternal conscious punishment uh, of the lost and uh, are there is that what Jesus embraced is that what Paul taught is that what we find in the writings of John and I can remember when I was in seminary we all are graduates of Dallas Seminary I took a course uh, on the exegesis of the book of Revelation from Dr. S. Lewis Johnson who's now with the Lord and um, our paper each of us had to write one exegetical paper on a particular paragraph in revelation and for some reason which i'm not altogether sure i chose revelation 14 9 through 11 it is for this day it was it was foreordained that uh, back in 1974 or 5 i would write that paper and i've always been 
fascinated, in awe, and yes, even to some extent offended by, but uh, absolutely overwhelmed with the truth of Revelation 14, 9 through 11. I almost want to read it. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Let me just stop there. Uh, the, the English translation doesn't really capture the essence of the original text here. When he says he will drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. The original text says it is mixed, unmixed. The wine of God's wrath, which the lost will drink, is mixed, unmixed. And most likely the point of that is it is unmixed in the sense that God's wrath is not diluted. Mm. In other words, uh, as they would take wine and oftentimes Mm. dilute it with water to reduce its alcoholic impact, he's saying here the wine of God's wrath is not diluted. But then it says it is mixed unmixed. It's not only undiluted, but it is there are spices added to the wine of God's wrath to actually intensify the force of what is being drunk. So it's a very vivid image there. And then it says, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And by the way, it's interesting, that same phraseology is used earlier in Revelation 4 and 5 to describe the unending worship by the four living creatures of God. They have no rest day or night. Their worship is incessant and unending. Here the same phrase used to describe the torment of those uh, who are separated from God. Um, These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Uh, It's an interesting uh, uh, paradox here, though, that needs some explanation. In Second Thessalonians 1, that is also a very vivid description of the reality of hell, we are told that uh, those who disobey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. And yet here in Revelation 14, we are told that they will be tormented in the presence of the Lord mm-hmm. and of his holy angels. And if people are looking at those two descriptions of hell and wondering if they're contradictory, I don't. I think the answer is no. Second Thessalonians one is saying they will not experience the loving, merciful, uh, joyful presence of Christ. They will. They will not experience His presence in the way that the saved will. But they will be tormented forever in the presence of the Lord, in the sense that He is the one who is actually pouring out judgment. He is the one who inflicts the torment forever and ever. So uh, those are not contradictory statements, but it is on the surface uh, seemingly somewhat of a problem. But again, you read that, excuse me, and the the vivid language, the vivid terminology, the forever and ever, without rest, day and night, um, that concept itself can torment us day and night here on earth. Mm -hmm. And I understand fully why it would. I understand why people would read that and uh, try to figure out some way of explaining it away, somehow accounting for it by arguing, well, maybe it's just all symbolic or it's just hyperbole or 
Uh, we need to counterbalance it with statements about God's love and his long-suffering. But that is about the most inex- uh, inescapably clear passage on the reality of eternal punishment that I know of in the Bible. Yeah. If your source is... Um if your source is your own emotions, if that's what we're trying to get to, if we're trying to get how do we feel and how does this make us feel and, you know, we're sitting in a counseling office and, and, and we're trying to shut the doors in our mind that are causing us the trouble, these are the doors that we're going to shut. Okay? Yeah. The, the folks, if, 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 we're, if we're not grounded, if our, if our conviction of what is true comes first from us, then, then we, we got other issues. You, you, you're going to shut all kinds of doors. It's going to be a smorgasbord of Christianity and whatever else you want to throw in the mix. But what we're trying to do here, and I think what you've seen so far, and we're out of time, we've got to do this again. We, we've got to talk a little bit more about this. But it, uh, <clears throat> if, if you're tr- trusting and you're, you're convicted and you're grounded in the Word of God, then that's where we go. That's, that's the end, and, and that's, the, that's the final stopping place. It's the, it's the norm that norms, which is not normed. It's the final source of authority. It's the, the sola scriptura, the only infallible source. And that's what we're trying to do. Okay? We're not trying to come up here. and we're, I, I'm not sitting here celebrating necessarily. I haven't gotten to that point where I, where I can feel as if I can celebrate the doctrine of hell. I believe in it and I trust the Lord and I know he's more righteous than me. And I believe that scripture that says, Michael, every time you sit, you, you try to get God in the, in the, in the seat of, of judgment, he's going to prevail. And so I get him out of that seat immediately. And that's where I go with it. And I understand what Sam's saying about the glory and the, the, the celebration of God's righteousness and his judgment. But folks, Here's the deal. If you're not, if your final source isn't the Word of God, if your final source is you and the Word of God, or the Word of God until you don't really like it, then we're not going to have much to say to you. You know, it's not going to appeal to you. We're not trying to appeal to anybody necessarily. We're not trying to put forth the best case scenario to make you feel good. A lot of times it's going to be disturbing. A lot of times, woe is me is going to be the attitude. Most of the time. So we'll pick this back up next time and try to dig a little bit deeper into these scriptures and also try to give you a lay of the land of, of what are the options that are being presented out there. And, we, and, and to be uh, <clears throat> excuse me, fair and honest in our evaluation, we, we do need to talk a little bit about the arguments that um, those who deny the existence of eternal punishment bring to bear. Uh, because they do have text, they do have um, issues that they think uh, uh, would lead uh, them to have justifiable grounds for concluding there is no such thing as hell. And we, when we honestly, we need to address those. All right, folks, next time, continue on this doctrine of hell. And uh, uh, you guys have a great week, and may God bless you. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, 
visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.